Hi, I'm John Farmer, and you're listening to a special midweek Georgian Bay Roots podcast. This is my feature interview with Corin Raymond, a Juno Award-nominated singer-songwriter and summer folk veteran from his days playing with the Undesirables, a fantastic duo from Ontario. And Corin was in Leith a couple of weeks ago for a house concert. I caught up with him there. We spoke for half an hour, and that was too much to put onto the radio show for the week of June 23rd. So I thought that I would give you the entire conversation as a podcast. We're going to start off with Corin Raymond's song, There Will Always Be a Small Time, which is the title track from a wonderful album. And then we'll roll into that interview, and we'll finish it all off with a song request that Corin made in that interview itself. Hope you enjoy. This is Corin Raymond with There Will Always Be a Small Time. Stars rise and stars fall You can never count them all I'm glad to see that yours is on the rise Nearly everywhere I go, I hear you on the radio. <laughs> I can't say that I'm surprised. But the big time is a long climb. You can slide back in no time. And if your star should ever fade, and I'll be right here acting half my age, <laughs> strutting all around the stage. Still having fun and getting paid Cause there will always be a small time If all the lights go to your head There will always be a good time When the nine to five Come and see us now and then I got old boots and a cell phone With a poor choices ringtone I play here every Thursday in this bar It's the last call for day price Side says this is paradise And that's exactly where we are Folks here seem to like my sound Tell me that I'm big time bound All I can say is it ain't happy yet But if fortune calls me by my name I go out to play the game There's one thing I won't forget If I'm somewhere else instead, I know one thing, there will always be a good time, when the nine to fivers go to bed, it will always be the right time, for me to walk back through that door, 
Welcome back to the greater Owen Sound in Grey Bruce areas. Uh, you just finished a house concert in Leith. How are you feeling? Oh, man, I feel great. It was an awesome show. So thank you for this. Uh, yeah, I, I, and it's great to be back. Ever since the first Summer Folk that I did with The Undesirables with Sean Cotton, I don't know when that was. Maybe it was 2005 or 2004. Something like that. Yeah. But ever since then, um, I mean, I've just always enjoyed and felt connected to. It's such a strong community here. It's such an amazing arts community, and it's amazing. Every time I come here, I see folks like yourself who are so, you know, just such a part of bringing people together. And, and it just seems like Owen Sound has always been very kind and very supportive and nurturing of of young artists and of musicians and uh it's really cool to feel that you know whenever we whenever i come back community seems like a real theme in in your music and the way that your musical career uh, has progressed and continues to uh can you tell me more about what collaborating and 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 working with other artists in the various ways that you do has meant for for your development 
Well, I think in the kingdom of the small time, which is how I refer to, you know, where I make a living uh, in folk music and roots music, it's it's all made of people. So, you know, I'm not on a record label. I've never been on a record label. I've never really trucked with that kind of uh, sort of classic model of industry. Um, it's always been about my alliances with other people, other artists. So like meeting Jonathan Bird in Austin, Texas in 2006 changed my life. Uh, meeting David Ross McDonald uh, in Memphis in, uh, you know, 2007 changed my life. Um, you know, David Ross McDonald brought the Undesirables to Australia twice and has since, now there's a David Ross McDonald song on my new album, which hasn't even come out yet. So it's like, I mean, that's what it's all about. Um, you know, it's people that make this thing go. Um, people and these little pockets of community, which generally tend to satellite around the festivals. You know, you've got a strong festival like Summerfolk, and then you've got all these sort of satellite pockets of, uh, you know, the, 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 sort of like the greater Summerfolk area. Um, every festival sort of has that, and, and Canada's rich in um, music festivals of all sizes. And so it's an amazing thing to be able to come here tonight as we did tonight and come and play for this. Like, again, you've got this, you know, 40 people tonight that are very much uh, a little pocket of that Owen Sound, of that Georgian Bay community. And so uh, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm far away from the question you asked, but I, I feel like the small time is all about people. It's without the people, it doesn't exist. So it's, it's kind of made of community um, and needs community to just survive. Without that, what I do would kind of fall apart. So if we're talking about community helping you to do what you do, can you give us the the 90-second story behind Paper Nickels? Well, the elevator thing would be, I guess uh, I, I made a double album, most of, of the 20 songs, but most of them by peers of mine. Again, another community, a network that exists across this country and around the world of uh, songwriters and, and performers whether they travel or whether they stay at home. So I put out this double album, sell, like sharing, I recorded songs by, by peers and colleagues of mine, songs I'd picked up along the way. And just by happenstance and by kind of a uh, serendipitous, like a hilarious kind of miracle occurred by which I was able to pay for the making of this double album with Canadian Tire Money. Um, and that the telling of what happened in that story is in, like it takes me an hour to tell the story. I have that one man show, the great Canadian Tire Money Caper, where I tell what happened. But the the, the upshot is, um, I was able to finally pay for the recording. I gave the studio seven thousand three hundred thirty three dollars and seventy five cents, which weighed eighty five pounds, and um, it took fifteen months of uh, crowdfunding, five cents at a time from people where it was the most incredible thing that took place and um, it'll never happen again and it'll make me smile until I'm dead. So crowdsourcing has been something that that has really empowered you. Your, was it 2016, 2017, Hobo Jungle Fever Dreams, the album, um, I remember being blown away by the beer steins that were part of your crowdsourcing campaign for that particular album. How do, why, tell us more about crowdsourcing. Why is that important for 
folks who are, are making music the way that you're making music? Well, crowdsourcing is just, it's a, it's a resource um, that, and it's, it's so important. It's also, it's another form of community, right? It's not just, it's, it's how we can get together. It's how we can make this thing happen together. Like I can't do it on my own, you know? Um, and the fact is that my life has become very rich with the people. And because I, because I exist in the small time where like, I think I shook hands with everyone who was here tonight and, um, you know, that doesn't happen in the big time. You don't have that personal relationship with the people who are your fans. You don't get to know anything about their lives. You don't get to be touched by them quite the same way as you do in the folk community. And, um, you know, uh, what I do has a value for people. And um, I can't make it happen on my own. And so crowdsourcing is just an incredible way to include everybody. It's just a way to... And it makes the bond stronger. It binds the community. Like when that thing happened, when we raised that $7,333.75 in Canadian tire money, which was impossible to do, and we did it, you know. I mean, that was something that everyone who had contributed, even a single five-cent bill, which is what most people contributed to that adventure, they were all equally involved, you know, for the entire, the entire run of what happened the whole saga as it hilariously unfolded was something that belonged to them and which gave them something to laugh about every day and made so many people happy and inspired so many people um and you know there were thousands and thousands of people involved and um you know you, you could buy in for like a nickel made of paper and so it doesn't cost much to become part of something, you know, and that's where, that's where we differ as artists and as as communities. We differ from the, um, you know, I don't want to get political, but I mean, it's a very, very highly charged political time, and a lot of people with money are being rewarded, um, and really, profit is more important than people to a lot of the current administrations um, that are in power in the in the world right now. Profit is clearly more important than people. And in the small time, profit isn't what we're doing this for. Uh, and the money that people spend in the small time has a value that profit seekers will never understand. They will never be able to get their heads around the fact that when I sell an album that I that I, that I take me like, this new album I'm doing, I mean, I, I say... You know, for all intents and purposes, I, that it takes me two years to make an album. But I've been making these albums all like I've been this new album I'm about to put. I've been making it all my life. Like this album has, this album goes back to when I was born. Like I've been, I sourced my entire life um, and been working my whole life and put in thousands and hundreds of thousands of hours and years that I will never ever be reimbursed for. Like, if you're thinking about it in those terms, I will never get paid for that work. But it's because I'm willing to, 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 to do that work and, and, and give it all to, the, to these people who are my community and my fans. And the love that they give me and the $20 that they pay for an album that I've made, 
that's worth more than any twenty dollars. You can't put you can't you can't add that up in a calculator. There's no abacus. There's no personal computer, and there's certainly no bank teller who will understand that that twenty dollars is far more valuable than a simple twenty dollars. Um, and that's a real hard thing for me even to talk about. It's hard to explain. It's kind of this uh, this unspoken thing. It's this sort of gift economy which is anathema, if that's the right word, um, to people like, you know, the current U.S. administration or the current uh, Ontario premiership. Um, it's not even something that they could, they would be able to comprehend. Um, so it's, uh, it, I don't know, it's all about the crowdsourcing is just another, it's just another piece of that. Uh, that fact that we do this together, that this belongs to us, and that we decide the value of these things, and that um, you know we we can turn our money into love. Like everyone that everyone that that helps me, everyone that pre-purchases an album or donates something to what I'm doing, um, I'm turning that into love that um, that can actually be felt, actually be received in the lives of all these people, myself included. So, I don't know, crowdsourcing is kind of a magical thing. And it doesn't seem to me like it's not, crowdsourcing isn't an idea. It's not like, oh, I'll, I'll ask people for money. It's like not a, it's not a plan. It's not like, of course, you have to execute it and do your work. But it's not like a, it's just this thing that happens when people all believe in something together. As, as you're talking sense. about that, I'm thinking about, um, so often songs become, and music become so important to people, right? And and I heard people today talk to you about taking their kids who are now coming back from university to see you in shows and, and the way that you're like a CD that that person bought at that show when their, their child was an infant or a toddler, that music attains and gathers a kind of sentimental value. And it strikes me that that hearing you talk about people being able to contribute to making the album be possible before that lets them front load the sentimental value of of that engagement. It's totally true. Again, like as it was with Paper Nichols or with any of these projects, it's like, it, this is, and this is also the thing that's missing, I think, from the current um, trends in the industry as far as how music is uh, consumed or, or listened to. Um, that's the thing that's missing from streaming is that personal investment, you know? Like when I, like I think back, I'm lucky because I'm 46 years old and so I'm lucky that I, I lived, I didn't have an email address until I was 30. I lived, you know, the bulk of my life in an, in an internetless age uh, at a time when I couldn't look up an album online. Um, if it was all detective work, it was legwork, there was digging, you know, it was fun. You'd go from record shop to record shop and you'd follow the breadcrumbs. Um, you know, I discovered the blues when I was 15 years old because of the Blues Brothers, because I was obsessed with Saturday Night Live reruns. Um, and I loved the Blues Brothers were my favorite thing on Saturday Night Live. And I used to tape them and watch them over and over again. And I knew that they weren't the blues, but I didn't really know what the blues was. But I sensed that John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd knew what the blues was and that they were huge that it, they kind of worshipped the blues, that to them it was sort of a sacred thing, that they were sort of doing this shtick, um, which was hilarious and invigorating and amazing. But 
I actually went into Toronto one day. I took the GO bus into Toronto to find the blues. And I went to the Jazz and Blues Center at Dundas and Victoria because I figured I could find the blues there, the Jazz and Blues Center. And I went there and I talked to the proprietor, Hal, and who I got to know over the years. Um, but I just, you know, I went in there. I took the bus into Toronto to do this, you know, and I'm 15 years old spending my Toronto Star paper route money and I could only afford to buy one album, one tape at that time, one cassette. You know, they had them in those paddles where they're locked in the paddles and you look through all the cassettes. And I I chose, because uh, cause John Belushi and, well, because I had the Blues Brothers book and in the book, that which tells the story of Jake and Elwood Blues from the time that they were uh, abandoned as orphans or whatever. And, you know, the names Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters come up in the book a bunch. And I didn't even know if they were real people or whatever, like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, like what are these crazy sort of dangerous sounding aliases and these secret identities. And anyway, I found Muddy Waters, the chess, you know, uh, Muddy Waters, uh, the real folk blues. And I bought that cassette which came with like fold out liner notes, you know, it had all this information about the, the, the you know, the sessions and the musicians and, the, and that time in Chicago and stuff. But that's the cool thing. I had to go and find it and then I couldn't play it. You know, I, like I had to take it home to play it, you know, and take the bus home, like reading all about it the whole way and kind of... Burning a hole in your pocket? Yeah, and I took it home and I played it and I didn't even like it at first. I thought it was, it sounded really cliche to me because of course it had been uh, counterfeited so many times, um, that music that I didn't even fully understand it. It was so raw. I'd never heard music that raw because I was, you know, raised on like Iron Maiden and Brian Adams or whatever. A lot of this very produced stuff in the 80s. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about this kind of, this sort of uh, elemental uh, American music. So I, not only did I have to go into Toronto and buy it, not only have to, did I have to decide what to invest my money in, not only did I make that choice and take it all the way home and listen to it, but I kept listening to it because I'd invested in it. And I kept listening to it because Hal at the Jazz and Blues Center told me it was an awesome place to start. And because Jake and Elwood Blues loved Muddy Waters and because I knew that this was the real thing and that I just didn't understand it yet and I had invested, I was personally invested because I had put my money down and I had pursued this. I had followed the breadcrumbs. And um, that's, that's absolutely missing. I think, from the current uh, fashion of just disposable music online or whatever it is, it's always, it's just disposable. You you listen to it or you watch it and there's nothing comes with it. You're not connected to it. You're not invested in it. You haven't taken any kind of risk. And in fact, if you don't like it at first, you're probably just going to click, just like click, click, click. You're, What's the you're, first 30 you're seconds? You're gone somewhere else. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's something that, you know, there are those exceptions, people who dig and people who have that detective in them, people who kind of will follow the clues or just dig a little deeper and maybe discover things they never would have. But I think that's mostly gone. And um, I think crowdsourcing kind of brings that back. It's kind of, it, it allows a person to feel invested in something. It allows them to be connected to it. It allows them to put their money down and actually say, I believe in this, you know, this is worth it. This is worth this risk. I haven't heard your record yet, but I got a good feeling about it. And when it comes out, like you say, there is that front end of, um, you know, of, of, of personal affection for the project because 
they have gotten involved in it. It wasn't just something that they streamed and it wasn't just something that came and went, uh, that passed by in the sort of the bloodstream. It was something that they actually sought out or they decided. They clicked, they, they followed, they, they put their money down, you know? And I don't know, I, I feel that way whenever I, 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 I pay for, I help with friends. Like if I got a friend who like I'm a fan of, they're doing a, a crowdsourcing campaign. I'll always put down some money, 50 bucks or 30 bucks or whatever I can afford at the time or whatever. But I mean, even if I invest $10 in their project, it already puts like that. I got a dog in that fight. And I think that that's really cool. And that's something we can do when we get together and make stuff happen together. It, it strikes me in, in knowing about kind of the way that you've put out albums, you've made a tradition of putting other people's songs on your albums, even though you yourself are a songwriter. What is it about in, about a song or a songwriter that makes you say, I want that person or I want that story or I want that song to be on my own record? Well, I'm a fan first. Like all good songwriters are fans first. Um, you know, the, the reason they, they write songs because they love good songs. And, um, you know, we all, all of us songwriters are secretly, um, we just want to find good songs. We just, we're just into, we just want good songs. And I mean, if you get to write them, that's fun, but it doesn't really matter whether you write them or not. It's sort of just about finding those songs. And, um, you know, it's a great feeling when another songwriter feels that way about about your song or, or wishes that they had written the song, which is kind of the, that's the brass ring in the world of songwriters, in the world of professional songwriters, particularly there is a, it, it, it's like you want to ring the bell with the hammer, the best reaction you can get is like when another songwriter is angry with you for having written the song that they wish they had written. You want that songwriter to be gnashing their teeth. You want them to be rolling on the floor, like pounding the, 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 the carpet like a baby and wailing and wishing that they had written this song. And uh, that's, that's the highest compliment you can receive from another songwriter is that you kind of piss them off by writing this song. And, um, you know, I'm lucky enough that I've, I've, I've managed to stir up that kind of uh, you know, reaction in a number of songwriters, and they certainly have done the same for me. So, uh, but also it's not, I mean, that's, I, I say this in like half in jest, but really the fundamental feeling that we get is just this, this joy, this joy that this great song exists. And, you know, we just want to, we want to show it to everybody. We want, we want everybody to hear it. If you're an enthusiast, anyway, I'm an enthusiast. So like when I hear a song, that's a good song. Like that's why I got into this business. I mean, I always loved good songs, and before I was writing them, I was showing them to people. I would be making them listen to Tom Waits records or making them listen to this whatever, whether it was a Dave Frischberg song or something by Frank Lesser or Leonard Cohen or, or Joni Mitchell or whoever it was. It was like, you got to hear this. So the only thing that changes is that you begin to contribute to this, um, this wealth. Um, but, you know... We all want to feel that feeling. It's not, we don't want, we all want to feel that feeling of being in awe, of being delighted, of being moved, of being transported, of being given access to parts of ourselves that maybe we'd close doors to until we hear a particular song. And I mean, at the end of the day, I don't, 
think I think this I think this idea of like of being the singer songwriter and it being all like precious like songwriters that only sing their own songs. I think that's kind of a relatively new thing. And I think that there was a time if you look at like Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson and Roger Miller and Johnny Cash and all that crew. I mean, like Roger Miller was the first to cut me and Bobby McGee. I first heard that song on a Gordon Lightfoot record. Uh, Willie Nelson even sang a song that Roger Miller wrote about like screwing Willie Nelson's wife uh, called Sorry Willie. And uh, the song is so good uh, that Willie Nelson actually recorded it. And um, it's one of those things, it's just like, it's just a good song, you know? And it's like, they, those guys were all over each other's stuff. I mean, Johnny Cash was the first to cut Sunday Morning Coming Down, and it just goes around and around, you know? Um, and those guys would put out whole albums of other people's songs. You know, Waylon Jennings would put out a whole album of... Waylon Plays um, Willie. And yeah, Waylon Plays Willie, or like, you know, Billy Joe Shaver, like a whole album of Billy Joe Shaver songs, or... You know, Bobby Bear putting out whole albums of Shel Silverstein songs. Um, so this is not, um, you know, this isn't a new thing. It's just uh, unusual in this sort of people get a little self-absorbed. Um, or perhaps, I don't know what they're, you know, I'm a, like I say, I'm a fan. So I've always been a fan. I just want, I just want to hear the best songs out there. I want to find them. I want to hear them. I want to know about them. And at the same time, of course, whenever you hear one, there's always that feeling of like, ah, like, why didn't I think of that? Like, if it just given me an extra day, you know, like, but that's the joy of it. And that's, that's what we do for each other, because none of us are going to think of the things that the other person's going to think of, which is what makes this, this whole business so interesting, right? Are there comp so you you play across Canada? I, I know that you spend time in Australia. That you get to travel around this world playing music and finding the people who love and who play music. Are there particular ways that that you find the Canadian scene as distinct from from the scene that exists other places, or is it is it the the things that resonate here, the things that resonate with those people anywhere? Um, that's a good question. I wonder. Well, it makes me think. First thing I think is, I think of a few things when you say that. One is like my song Morning Glories, which, you know, is about the Kensington Market in Toronto. Um, that's a song I've, I've played that song all over the world. You know, I've played it all over Australia. I've played it all over the States. Um, uh, and it's amazing to, to be able to sing that song in Oklahoma or, you know, in New South Wales and have people relate so strongly to it. And it's like everybody has their Kensington market. Everybody knows those people. And so the fact that it's kind of riddled with very particular Canadian details doesn't seem to matter, um, which is kind of amazing. I think that's true of all good music, you know? Um, you know, when I listen to some of that early Guy Clark stuff, like I think of L.A. Freeway, his song L.A. Freeway, where he's got some very specific references in that where he actually, he calls some bass player by his nickname that was a guy who was his housemate. And he talks about um, some very things, things that are very particular to, to his life and his neighborhood. It doesn't matter. It's like, it doesn't matter. You, it doesn't matter that you don't know that person or whatever. It's like he takes you there. Now, I'm not sure if that's what you were asking, but that was the first thing I thought was just, 
I think songs are a kind of currency um, and that as songwriters, and I don't know about other people, but as a fan of songs, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for songs that are particular to their pl their their time and their place, their community. I'm looking for songs that can 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 let me enter another culture, another world. And of course, when I say that, I'm really talking mostly about English-speaking culture because that's the language I understand the best. Um, and so, you know, Canada also, you also made me think that Canada has a lot of... Um, Canada has a very strong music community, um, and that's because I think partly because um, this may be changing now, and it may certainly change drastically in the next few years. But there's always been money allocated by government um, to supporting arts and supporting uh, writers and musicians and um, of all kinds, which of course fosters community and. Um, makes community possible you know Doug Ford has just uh, you know it's just yanked uh, most of the money um, that was uh, the funding that was being received by by music festivals because uh, that's not important to, to this government um, because you can't profit by it but of course we know as we talk about you know here on Georgian Bay Roots and we talk you know we you know summer folk and, and as I say, in Canada, all the communities that sort of orbit around a music festival, like we know how powerful that is and how it changes people's lives. And um, Canada is lucky, uh, unlike the states where there is zero funding. Like, you know, I think Texas is the only, I think it's the only state in the union that has a music office as part of their government. Um, you know, in, 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 in the life in the U.S. is harsh, you know. You know, there's no Medicare. You've got all these things, all these pressures. Um, you, you get squeezed with all these pressures. And it's like here, I'm not going to say life is easy, but it's a hell of a lot easier, you know. We don't have the war machine. We don't have the war on drugs. We don't have, uh, you know, the dependency on insurance companies and all those things. We have funding for arts that we don't, you know, that other countries might not have. And it changes things, you know. Canada is like, there's U.S. artists love coming up to Canada. Jonathan Bird makes more money in Canada than anywhere else that he tours in the world. And he has a strong, his fan base here is so strong. And that's really because the community exists. The communities are there. You don't have to drive so far in Canada to find the next festival, to find the next house concert, to find the next concert series. Where, whereas in the States, the States is also very rich. And don't get me wrong, there's tons of community there. There's tons of those pockets. There's tons of festivals. But you might have to cross a state or two sometimes to get to the next community that's really supporting what we do and that is made of the kind of people that do this. Whereas in, in Canada, we have an abundance of this, you know, and, and it just happens that, that Owen Sound is, is particularly strong. It happens that the Georgian Bay community is particularly strong, particularly supportive, um, which is amazing. But um, I don't know if that answers your question about, you know, traveling in Canada or, you know, what things are like in different places. There's good people everywhere and there's communities everywhere, but I think we, we have something that we shouldn't be taking for granted. As we roll out here, what's uh, you talked about about self-identifying as a fan, uh, and that being what gets you what gets you into this to begin with. 
what's your the favorite song that you've discovered lately and should and and preferably one that we could play my favorite song that i've discovered recently um there were two bands from out west that just uh, stayed at my place actually uh, a couple weeks back and they were touring in ontario one of them was a band from east vancouver called kitty and the rooster who are amazing oh my god and kitty and the rooster sing songs like they're this sort of surf surf ability duo that are just Oh, it's so hard to describe them. They're 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 just they're so creative and they're such incredible sh show people. You know, it's a couple, uh, Jody Ponto and, and Noah Walker, Kitty and the Rooster. But they sing about our lives. They sing about these very things we're talking about. Like they've got a song called "One Gig Hard Drive," which is about driving 800 miles to play some, you know, some lousy gig and. Uh, They've got all these great songs like, uh, you know, you paid a million dollars to live like you're poor. Their song about being renovated in East Van. And uh, um, Kitty and the Rooster are great, but actually this is leading me to the song because they were touring with a, a with another duo, hardworking duo from Whitehorse called Soda Pony, which is, they are incredible. These two guys, you got Patrick Hamilton, who is Bob Hamilton's son. Bob Hamilton's a big musical cat uh, producer and just a, a legendary musician um, in Whitehorse. And his son, Patrick, who's 26 years old right now, and, and, and Aiden Tentries, who's the nephew of Gordy Tentries, who's a, a working singer-songwriter from the Yukon, travels a lot. Anyway, Aiden and Patrick have this duo called Soda Pony. And it is the best thing I've heard in the ages. And the two of them, each of them are playing two instruments. So you got Aiden playing electric guitar and he's playing some some keys and and Patrick is playing drums and playing the bass on a keyboard at the same time. And they do and then they're they're har they're harmonizing like they're harmonizing together and just and it's a like a full it sounds like a five piece rock band. But it's just absolutely classic Canadian music. And they have a song uh, their their first album is called their first album is called self titled debut, and their second album is called sophomore, and it's sophomore that I have had playing nonstop in my in my uh, in my Nissan CD player. There, uh, I've been listening to it over and over and over and over and over. I've probably listened to it fifty times. Uh, and the first track on sophomore, I love the whole album, but the first track is called on the line. It's just about having this like just this bad this beautiful this terrible like being having this crush on this on this uh this gal works in this this restaurant this bar and it's just called on the line and you just just find that song it's the first thing you look them up on Bandcamp or whatever it's the first thing that comes up sophomore comes up and on the line first thing comes up that's the best canadian song and the best song and my favorite song that i've heard it in a long time Corin, thanks so much for uh, taking some time to chat with us here. Uh, let's let's play some Soda Pony as we as we go out of, out of this interview. Uh, and for folks who are listening uh, as this is airing, you're going to be at Mariposa in just a couple of weeks. So we look forward to seeing you there and uh, and to receiving Dirty Mansions when when that piece of art is released into the world at the end of 2019. Yeah, thank you so much. Makes me so happy you're going to play Soda Pony. I'm so excited for people to hear it. Thanks so much for having me on the show, John. And uh, long live Georgian Bay Roots.
At special request from Corin Raymond, you just heard Soda Pony performing On the Line. We can't end on that musical note, though, not when this whole podcast is about Corin. So I'm going to play a song from Corin's album Hobo Jungle Fever Dreams. That was the one that got him the Juno nomination a couple of years ago. This is a song that pays tribute to all those great acts that, although they might be dead now, still find life on the radio. This one's called Under the Belly of the Night, and it'll play you out to the end of this episode. They didn't want to roll the dice on icy roads that night Or sleep in dirty clothes through a frozen Minnesota night Spent a month of rent to get on that B-35 Went off the air, not a soul survived Singing that'll be the day I die the night before How could he know those words of love would only hurt us more Man on the radio predicted snow Said the only stars to fall Clear Lake, Iowa, they fell under the belly of the night. Under the belly of the night. Under the belly of the night. But they're still on the air. You could find them there. How many folks tonight are putting trouble? Twisting the night away Down the courtyard You could hear him on the radio Behind the walls of number seven Singing soft and low A couple moaning When the gun popped in the night above They heard the shot And kept making love Under the belly of the night Jackie Wilson's heart is crying on commercial drive. Long as there's an FM dial, I know he's still alive. If I should die, I pray the radio my soul to keep. If I don't wake from nine years of sleep, under the belly of the night, under the belly of the night. Love.
show of summer folk with words and music and so much more am 560 sundays at four sundays at four sundays at four unless there's a hockey game on and then we'll be on after the hockey game sundays at four thank you very much georgian bay roots radio 